you have to remember in your career, my career, probably 80% of that time, we had T-bills at between four and a half and five and a half percent. So when I got in the business, no one was saying that was horrible. And no one was saying that the private equity industry is dead. In fact, it boomed. That's Steve Pagliuca, longtime chairman and now a senior advisor at Bain Capital. Today on Dry Powder, I'll ask Steve when the private equity industry will finally get back to deal-making at scale. We'll also discuss whether the classic buyout model is still relevant in today's landscape. I'm optimistic that because of the history, the value-added services, the alignment, the industry will continue to grow and continue to make businesses better and very viable. Steve has a unique position as one of the pioneers of the buyout industry from the earliest days in the 1980s and 90s to the hyper-specialized and scale world of the 2020s, where we have multi-billion dollar, multi-asset class firms trying to compete with each other for scarce dollars and scarce companies to buy. It's a very different industry now than it was then. But intriguingly, Steve says the same key lessons for survival and thriving can apply today as applied when he started in the business. I'm as excited today to be involved in it as I was you know, 30 years ago. I'm Hugh MacArthur, Chairman of Bain's Global Private Equity Practice, and this is Dry Powder. So thanks again for doing this. Really appreciate you coming on the show. I wanted to start by asking your thoughts on deal making and what I tend to call the shot heard around the world. The Fed last June levered up the interest rate by about 75 basis points, suggesting that it was going to take inflation seriously. And since that point, Deal making dropped with a big thud and hit the floor. And we're kind of running now in 2023 at levels of deal making we haven't seen in seven to eight years, which certainly aren't terrible. But given the amount of dry powder in the industry and given the amount of pent up uh, demand, it's much, much lower uh, than it was uh, even last year and certainly 2021. So we've had about 12 months now of pretty depressed deal making activity off those levels. Do you see any? signs that the market's coming back anytime soon? Or should we be bracing for kind of another lost year here, if I could use that phrase, before we get deal markets back on track at scale? Yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of a bifurcated answer. Some of the deal volume is down because we had a period where basically money was free. And that really caused a huge inflow of investments. A lot of them in businesses that didn't make money or, or startups that are risky out on the end of the risk curve because people are trying to get yield. And so that, that volume will not come back, which I think is actually a good thing because that was basically almost like gambling on low interest rates forever. And if you lost money and gained share, you would have a good business at the end. And that worked, but it worked maybe one out of a hundred times. So for every Uber, there were 99 other ones that didn't work out. And those are kind of going by the wayside right now. So I think that inflated the amount of investment going to those kinds of companies. Those won't come back any, anytime soon. And if I step back, you know, taking the long view, the long view is affected by three things. One is the walk back of quantitative easing, no more cheap money. But you have to remember in your career, my career, probably 80% of that time, we had T-bills at between four and a half and five and a half percent. So when I got in the business, no one was saying that was horrible. And no one was saying that the private equity industry is dead. In fact, it boomed with rates like that. This has been an anomaly the last 12 years. But it's going to stay probably at these levels for the next, I think, five to 10 years at least because they're walking back quantitative easing and they've realized that cheap money forever will bring inflation and we've got to bring inflation down. So that's one dynamic that we have to be aware of. The second is we're undergoing a, a major energy transformation. And say, you know, we'll be carbon free by 2030, 2040. I think that 
is not going to happen. It's going to take much longer. And we're going to have to develop a dual infrastructure to service that. And that's going to be expensive. That's going to put pressure on inflation because we need to build an alternate power system while we use the current fossil fuels to bridge to get there. And then the third dynamic that's going on that's been different from our careers is we are now into a heavy geopolitical contentious situation where you're seeing a a strategic decoupling. I, I won't say it's a total decoupling, but a strategic decoupling from China and Russia and other countries that have kind of walked back global trade. And uh, in our careers, global trade has gone up by 20 or 30 times. It's going to go down a bit now as people pull back and, and onshore, specifically with things that are strategic, like healthcare, like energy and chip production. And you see that in the CHIPS Act and how, how the governments are behaving. So those three dynamics will probably be with us for the next 10 years. And you have to be cognizant of that in terms of what is that going to do to any companies that you invest in? How does, how does that affect their trajectory? And, and so those are three really interesting big issues that you laid out, Steve. And as I think about them, you know, the decoupling that you mentioned will generate a lot of investment opportunities just because new ways of doing things and moving things need to be formed. The energy transition obviously will create substantial amounts and already has created substantial amounts of investing opportunity. The first thing you said around interest rates being higher for longer, it really resonated with me when you said, but we've seen these kinds of rates before and the industry has been able to boom. And so I look at this period and I look at the macro and I see the interest rates, I see the worries, but there's nothing fundamentally broken that I see in the global economy the way there was, say, in 2009 when the U.S. banking system almost collapsed and we had housing bubbles collapsing and negative equity in people's houses. There's not something like that where you say, boy, that's going to take five years to work out. And so is this a question of getting just confidence back into deal-making on the part of the banks and on the part of the GPs to go do things? Or is it a psychology, a bid-ask spread thing? Or what is the sort of the thing that's going to delay getting back to doing business at scale, if I can use that phrase, in the private equity buyout space? Well, I think the first thing is it takes a while for sellers to adjust their price expectations. And uh, in a higher interest rate environment, that obviously really affects what you pay for a business. It's a pretty simple equation. And and again, we were doing transactions where uh, I remember back in the late 80s and early 90s where we were paying interest rates on subordinated debt at 11 or 12%. That went away for the last 10 years. It's been about half that on subordinated debt. So I think there's a a period we're going through of, of seller price expectations adjustment, number one. Number two, there is uncertainty created by this uh, strategic decoupling, China, the war in the Ukraine. So people are thinking the next shoe is going to drop on a recession. It hasn't dropped. And now I think people are adjusting their thinking that if anything, it'll be a soft landing. If I see dark clouds on the horizon, the one dark cloud could be commercial real estate. COVID has changed the outlook on how we do business People want to be out of the office uh, one or two days a week, which has freed up a lot of office capacity. So uh, that that could be a dark cloud if we see value depreciation of office space that's got to be worked through. And we see it already in places like San Francisco. So I think we're really talking about sellers, buyers adjusting to the new economy as we go forward. Steve, you know, that's a really interesting comment because there are some secular trends that you've just described there that are clearly playing out and beginning to play out or are playing out in the economy. A lot of them accelerated as a result of COVID. There are a lot of macro factors that we've discussed that are going on out there. How do you think about 
navigating all of those issues at Bain Capital. And you mentioned something at the very outset that I think is interesting too, which is a lot of people got very aggressive during a period of extremely low interest rates and decided to bet a lot more on equity upside on some pretty risky businesses. And, and that probably is not going to, to come back. And as you think about the risk return frontier that all of those things imply, or many risk return frontiers, do you stick to safe harbors at Bank Capital and say, we got to just focus in now on what we really know and what we really understand? Or are you finding ways to push ahead in the search of alpha and still be confident in doing deals? How do you, how do you think about getting that done? Well, I think we're doing both of those. I think we've always kind of stuck to our knitting. We, we didn't really do many of the business models that called for losing money for 10 to 15 years and then coming out on the other side as a profitable company, as, as you're buying share, kind of the softback strategy. We stuck to our heritage from Bain & Company, which was really fundamental, looking at demand drivers, what the customer wants. Can the business strategically be changed? Can the business be a better business at the end of five to seven years? Does it have expansion potential into other countries? Does it have cost reduction potential? Does it have technology potential? Those are the kinds of things we've been doing for 30 years now, and we've, we've stuck to that. In terms of new viable investments, we've developed a large biotech life sciences practice. And if I would say there are green shoots out there, there's an energy transformation, but also there is a revolution going on in biotech where a confluence of the supercomputing ability, the 20 years now that we've now understood and, and mapped the genome, as some of the scientists say, it used to cost uh, $5 billion or $10 billion to map the first genome. Now it's $100. So those are coming together to make it uh, more efficient and easier to do drug discovery. So Bain Capital has, has a, a, a large effort in that area. And also in growth tech, growth tech is, is still here to stay. The dynamic there is what AI is going to do. And I think we're in the first inning of that. Every single business, including industrial businesses, will be affected by AI. And all the CEOs are asking the question, how can AI improve my business, improve my customer relations, improve my operations? And I think that's going to be a 10 to 20 year period, just like it was with the internet in the 90s. And so with all of that change and all of those transitions that you mentioned, biotech, you mentioned obviously energy transition, we've talked about a couple of times and now AI impacting everything, either a little bit or being completely transformational. Do you see the classic buyout model still working in all of those areas or does it need to be tweaked somehow? Well, I don't know if there is a classic buyout model. The buyout model that we use at Bain Capital, I think is very sustainable. It's withstood the test of time. My favorite kind of slide on Bain Capital, and I think this goes for many people in the industry, is that if you look at our whole history from, uh, you know, kind of 1984 on, so close to 40 years now, every year, if you, if you mapped it not by fund, but by investments we made in buyouts, uh, you know, in 85, 86, 87, the individual investments, and then you track back what the returns were on a multiple money basis in that 38-year period, uh, I think the lowest return, the average is something like two and a half. The lowest return is something like two. And that was investments made in the 07, 08 period, right before the, the biggest crisis we faced since the depression. That says to me that it's been a very sustainable alpha generating model through thick and thin, through, through a large crisis, through a pandemic, through stock market ups and downs. Why is that? Well, the reason is because it's a great business model. The first advantage it has versus a, a traditional corporate structure is you can be long-term oriented. Uh, our companies are private. They don't have to look at quarterly earnings. 
we're really investing so that the business can be larger and more impactful five years out, not, not quarter to quarter, number one. Number two, they're very small boards with a huge amount of expertise. We've gone from a general strategy practice at Bank Capital to vertical markets practices. So we have experts in every area from healthcare to financial services, to technology, to retail, to consumer, to biotech. And therefore you have very invested board members, uh, board members that are investing other people's funds, but also our own funds in these companies. So you have a huge alignment between management, the strategy and the investors, which is not there as much on, on a diversified board of directors of a, of a public company, which has all the politics involved of that. Third, now that the industry has matured, it's developed a whole host of value-added services that can really move the needle at these companies. So that was a thesis that Bain Capital was founded on. Bill Bain said, you know, we've done great work for clients. And the bio industry at that point in time was mainly financial folks from Wall Street who would use uh, leverage and junk bonds from Michael Milken to make a return. On, you know, you just had to grow a business a little bit to make a return when they were highly leveraged. The Bain Capital strategy was stemmed out of Bain & Company was to take an operating focus and try to build a bigger, strategic, more robust, higher market share business by, by the end of the plan. And so we have about double the staffing of most of the firms and, and we can bring in people directly and really drive strategy that way. So as that progressed from a general strategic perspective to vertical markets and now functional capabilities like digital marketing, we have experts in digital marketing we bring to the companies. We have experts in procurement we bring to the companies and we have experts in AI that we bring to the companies. So if you step back, as the industry has globalized, as it's developed these huge value-added capabilities, and most of the other competitors now have, have followed us, it can add a lot of value across these companies and, and platforms. So I think it's a model that's here to stay. It has the key factors of alignment, the ability to add a lot of value, and a long-term focus. And that's always going to be a competitive advantage for the industry. And finally, I would say the companies are not as leveraged as they used to be, but they're appropriately leveraged. The public companies are really tasked to have more constant and stable earnings and therefore are often under leveraged. And so we can have higher returns on equity because we put the appropriate leverage in and default rates have been very, very low for the last 10 years. So it's really a combination, Steve. What I'm hearing you say is that in order to stay ahead of the curve, the fundamental business model doesn't need to change, but you need to keep evolving to keep up with the time. So this verticalization to make sure that you have the right amount of sector expertise in these new cutting edge areas that are ripe for investment. And the fact that you have to understand what capabilities and skill sets you need to bring to those different situations in order to make sure that you can actually get what you underwrite is those two things that you put together and have to keep evergreen and up with the times in order to make sure that you're actually getting the returns consistently that you've been getting in the past. Does that sound fair as a, as a quick summary? That, that's very fair. We have to run harder, faster. You know, when I first started the business, if uh, there was two or three private equity firms that would show up on any deal, that was a robust, you know, market. So prices were a lot lower. There was a lot less competition. Now, uh, every business of scale runs through a process. There are literally, instead of tens of private equity firms, there are, are thousands uh, ranging from mid-market to large cap firms. So to deliver returns for investors, you really have to drive down this, what I'll call value-added approach curve. And uh, we've invested that in a big way. We've invested, I think, literally hundreds of millions of dollars as being capital and in the industry to provide those services that kind of cut across companies, both functional services and strategic services that can drive that strategy. And when you combine that value added with 
the fundamental alignment in the model and the long-term approach, it should be able to deliver robust returns for investors. As you well know, fundraising and investor relations have been in the news a lot lately because it's tough to raise capital out there. It's about as difficult as it was post the great financial crisis of, of 09. And one of the big problems that we've seen is that LPs in particular are challenged because they're not getting a lot of dollars back, what we call DPI in industry parlance, from GPs writ large. And so they're feeling a bit cash constrained. They're feeling a bit nervous with all these macro issues. How do you think about effective fundraising strategy in that kind of environment of uncertainty? I think effective fundraising strategy is fundamental and goes you know, way back to 10 or 20 years ago, where certainly at Bain Capital and many of the private firms, you want to cultivate investors that are aligned with you that are there for the long haul. And we've had periods of slow liquidity, especially after the crisis. We've had periods where they weren't getting back money to reinvest. We've been blessed by having a long-term set of investors that have stuck with us. And the ones that stuck with us have really uh, profited because they've made multiple returns on their money versus pulling back when there was a slowdown period. They believed in the model, they believed in the company. So These periods where it's tough to raise money is really a weeding out period. And a lot of times it weeds out the bottom 10 or 15% of the firms. The best firms will continue to to raise good sized funds. They may be a little smaller, you know, given the investor's liquidity, but the best firms will continue to raise good sized funds. It's it's almost like a forest fire. You you know, you have to have some forest fires to burn out the players that that are not, you know, doing as well for investors. And that, that becomes very apparent in these kinds of environments. And investors have to vote with their dollars and vote with their feet. And they normally go to the quality firms that have been around that, that have delivered returns, that have a, a coherent strategy, that have been investor-focused you know, focused and investor-friendly. And so those firms will continue to raise money. It might be at a little slower pace short term, but that'll come back as soon as the markets get liquid again and you start to see distributions and there'll be more capital available to, to reinvest into funds. So, Steve, with all of the change going on in the industry right now and all of the new investment opportunities, and in in reading in the media, you can see that we just had the close of the largest buyout fund ever. Are we going to see ever larger buyout funds to take advantage of that, maybe $40, $50 billion, or is that just not the way the industry is going to evolve? The question will be, uh, you know, what is the appropriate scale? Um, We always try to size our funds at Bain Capital based upon the opportunities that, that we see. Now, the industry has expanded globally. It's expanded in terms of its capabilities. So it can do now science and biotech. So I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, a few mega funds succeed. The issue with mega funds is it's, it's, it's often difficult if you get too large to keep that focus and keep that culture. So there might be a governor on that, but I wouldn't be surprised to see the industry getting even larger. Uh, I think we are still only in the third, you know, in the early stages of what the industry can do given its capabilities and given now it's invested in all these technologies to make companies better. So what would the bio industry look like five years from now? I think it'll continue to develop value-added services. It'll continue to kind of expand geographically. I think 10 years from now, the Africa situation may come to fruition. There's what they've always talked about. Africa, it's gonna be the largest population base in the world. And so I think private equity will start to to dip their toe in the water there and try to help in in emerging economies as, as maybe a new frontier. But I'm optimistic that because of the history, the value-added services, the alignment, the industry will continue to grow and continue to make businesses better. And I'm as excited today to be involved in it as I was you know, 30 years ago. On the next episode of Drive Powder, we'll turn our attention to the Boston Celtics and Atalanta. 
and how Steve thinks about highly mobile and mission-critical talent. We've taken that kind of long-term approach, and when you get A players and great leaders in management, you stick with them. I'm Hugh MacArthur. Thank you for listening. <laughs>